find your hook, find your value propositions, find your call to action at the end. You throw up a 30 second video on YouTube and you can see how it converts to see, okay, is it converting to my warm audience? Yes. Now I can run it on paid. Hey, what's up everyone? My name is Andre from Carthoop and welcome to the Growth Theory Podcast. I'm super excited about today's episode. Our guest is Luis Fawcett, the COO and co-founder of Patrick Adair Designs. Today's conversation revolves around two things, the challenges and opportunities around building handmade products in the United States. And in the second part of the episode, we talk about content and more specifically about video. We'll see how Lewis and his team took their YouTube channel from 20,000 subscribers all the way up to 750,000 subscribers in just a couple of years. We're going to explore how they build, how they plan and how they launch video content. And we'll see how basically anyone can, can, can produce video content, even on a budget. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, man. So it's awesome having you here today. Um, before we start, just uh, let the audience know uh, what do you do, who you are, and how you ended up uh, where you are today. Um, okay, so I'll try to give about the three-minute version. Um, <laughs> my name is Lewis Fawcett, and I am a founder slash executive for um, a pair of direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. So the way, and those companies are Patrick Adair Designs and Patrick Adair Supplies. And the way that all started was while I was in college, I'll kind of, I'll skip how the companies were started and come to my entry point. But while I was in college, I had a friend who he had kind of created this small business as an artist. He was doing a lot of commission-based work selling luxury men's rings. So He'd post on Instagram and say, hey, I'll make someone a ring for $200. Someone would PayPal him $200. They'd design the ring on a Skype call. And then he'd make the ring and send it to him. And that was kind of his entire business. But he wanted to switch it up a little. He wanted to make it a little more streamlined. And so he started hiring me to do lots of small tasks, things like, hey, help me put together a website. Help me edit some product images and come up with some kind of like hero designs that can be evergreen, things like that. And that kind of Mm -hmm. just snowballed while I was in college. I worked with him for a full summer doing things like that. And then it became a thing of like, oh, well, now people are ordering a lot of these rings. How do we have a system to keep track of them? Things like that. And as that snowballed, I became a partner in that business. And then what we learned, a big part of how we were marketing was doing organic content-based marketing using social media, things like Instagram and YouTube. And what we learned is we had this, we had two audiences. So we had this audience of people who wanted to buy nice jewelry and wear cool designs, things like that. But then we also had an audience that just loved watching DIY maker videos. And so our thought was, how do we create a product that serves them? And that's where we founded our second company, which was Patrick Air Supplies, which sells maker supplies mm-hmm. to hobbyist makers. Awesome. So... So you're telling me that this is the first time you actually started uh, jumping into e-commerce was was basically with no experience 
you, you just got you just got recruited in a way uh, in this business, and and you, you figured out everything on your own. Um, yeah, I would definitely say my prior to working and becoming a partner at Patrick Peter Designs, my only um, background with e-commerce would be digital marketplaces and video games. So like literally zero. Got it. Got it. So, so when did, when did you start it? Like how, how many years ago? Um, so technically the company started my senior year of high school, but it took me about a year and a half to go from kind of like just a little side hustle for a, um, for a high school kid that was Patrick, my business partner. Mm-hmm. It took him about a year and a half to take it from a side hustle to ready to be more serious. And so I joined end of 2016, early 2017. I'd have to find, yeah. I'd have to go through like my Facebook timeline to actually figure out the exact <laughs> dates. Awesome. So, so when you, when you joined the company or when you started, can you give me a sense of how big the business were or was, or anything that would, you know, I, we would, we could compare with the Patrick and there today. Yeah. So I think I don't have the exact numbers because before we used Shopify as our backend, we used GoDaddy and I don't have any access to any of that <laughs> stuff. I don't think Patrick does either. Sure. It's just gone in the abyss. So <laughs> I have the numbers from about one month after I started and we were doing about 10 to $20,000 a month in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, closer to that $10,000 mark. And then our other like key KPI as far as size at that time was we had just under 40,000 YouTube subscribers. Hmm. And so today um, we're doing just over $300,000 a month in revenue and we have almost 750,000 YouTube subscribers. Wow. And throughout this growth, um, were you were you actively like developing the YouTube strategy, or what was from the beginning? What was like? What were some of the areas that you helped uh, Patrick with? Oh yeah, so Patrick focuses on product design and big picture company goals. We want to be in X space. We want to really quarter the market through y design strategy and then he's obviously the face of the company and makes those big picture Mm -hmm. decisions i focus on um basically execution so anything that's patrick comes up with the big ideas and i turn them into something that we can execute with a strategy and a plan and make sure our teams follow through with it so i oversee all of our traditional marketing as well as our youtube marketing but patrick again like patrick for the youtube space He's the one coming up with the content ideas. He's the one being in the videos. He's the one there while they film mm-hmm. them. I'm just the one who plugs them into our ad strategy and our email marketing and CRO and all of that. And then because following that same system, so Patrick like designs the products and teaches the workers how to make them. I'm the one who structures how the workers work um, and all that operational and logistical strategy of purchasing, things like that, just the day-to-day Hmm. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. I see, I see on, on, on your YouTube channel that you have videos like from two years ago with 16 million views, 6 million, 4 million. Um, how, how does, like, how does one go from having all those views to converting customers? Do you, do you see like a direct correlation or it's mainly like you see this as an awareness for, for Patrick Adair designs. 
Um, it's a little bit of both. And I can give you some examples of people skewing either way. So we tend to be a lot more in the awareness category. Um, it's really our broadest top of funnel touch point for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and every video does have a call to action. All of our videos do focus on like a specific product or a specific design element. So it usually can link to one product page, but it's not super direct response. We're not out here going, you know, mm-hmm. go buy this blah, blah, blah. Like it's not pushing for a hard sell. It's more about how can we make amazing content and get it seen by as many people as possible. And then what we rely on in that system is it's kind of this strategy where we go from a video and then we push them to either a lander or a, our homepage. Our homepage is usually kind of like our catch all lander, which is what it should be yeah. for most brands, obviously, unless you're doing something really niche. Um, and from there, it's all about how do we get them in our funnel every other way. So, you know, we've got our Facebook pixel, we've got yeah. our Google. Um, I don't know if you technically call it a pixel with Google, but I call it a pixel. Google tag. Yeah. Google tag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Google tag. There we go. That's the, ta- I was like, I know I call it the wrong thing. I just don't know what the real <laughs> one is. Um, I, so that's what happens when you don't have any experience and you're just making it up as you go. Um, but then Snapchat, uh, email capture, all of those things. And then it's about how do we, slowly nurture them and build brand equity and then send them to the product page eventually and to the purchase. Um, And so for us, it really happens by YouTube being an awareness channel and then we build it out. There's some great brands though that really do some more direct response type stuff and they do it really well. Um, One big example, it's actually a brand I consult for on their email marketing strategy. They're called Stonecoat Countertops. And all of their videos are very direct response based. Um, And the difference is their videos tend to get less organic views. They're not as much of a media company nature. And they do have videos that do get crazy organic views. They'll still get millions of views and stuff, but it's just, they tend to, they also tend to have videos that they're about a similar size as us. And sometimes they'll get a video that gets 8,000 views because it's just, it's so narrow and who it's meant for that, YouTube's algorithm knows that and it's not going to send it out to as many people. But then they make up for that fact by because their videos are so direct response based, they can actually run them as ads without Mm. lots of editing. So then they can just pump ad spend into the YouTube platform on those ad on those videos as ads and kind of counteract that. And so it's just two different strategies and we do it one way. And it's also for us, it's mainly because all of our videos focus on a single design And then what we find is most people discover our brand through a design, but they don't necessarily want that design. They see that design and they go, oh, that's Mm -hmm. a cool thing. But it's not exactly for me, but I'd love to see more. And so then they go through. So it means making a video super direct response for a singular design just hasn't worked out for us before. Because then when we push spend behind it or things like that, they're not actually going to purchase that product. And then because it's being served as an ad and not as entertainment, they don't get, it doesn't get the um, view rate percentage as far as we would hope. And so that we don't get the pass through conversions as well either. So um, mm. that's kind of how that YouTube, that's kind of the two ways I've seen brands use YouTube organically. 
Yeah. So what you were mentioning before is that you currently use a mix. So it, it's more of a, maybe like, like 80, 20. So 80% you, you go for awareness and organic and then 20% you, you try to insert some direct, some, some marketing, like call to action at the end of the videos or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And the exact, the way to think about it is it's kind of like, like you said, 80, 20 versus like maybe even more like we're 70, 30 and the other strategies, 30, 70, but mm -hmm. both, both strategies have the calls to action and everything. It's just a difference in the structure of like, whether the content's made to be entertaining versus converting and are obviously you're always trying to do both, but you're always going to have to lean one way or the other of like, do we want to talk about these five points about why this product is great? Here it is. Or do we want to skip that because we know the general viewer is not going to care and it's just going to be fluff for them, you know, kind of things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it really isn't, both video types are going to have lots of calls to actions and things like that. It's just almost like the content is structured differently. Um, and the one thing to note is that like, if you look at the two, it's hard to give an example of how that structure differs exactly because it's going to depend on every single vertical or niche. And so that means I can't give like a, you know, here's five seconds for a hook. Here's this for this, yeah. here's this for this. But that's kind of like the one, like that's one big difference you'll see between us and like a brand like Stone Coat Countertops is all of their videos start with basically an ad hook of like, and it's like a 30 to 60 second ad hook. And that's because if they're going to run paid spend behind it, they need a hook that can pull someone who's mm. never seen their thumbnail. But that also means that as a piece of content, it's a lot slower to get into because it's almost like there's a 30 second, 60 second preview where you're explaining the entire video from a really broad view. And then you actually go into it. Whereas like our can, everyone who's watching our videos is there for just the entertainment. And so they already know what the video is going to be based on the thumbnail, the title, because they're never seeing yeah. them as ads. So that would just slow it down and make them want to leave because they kind of like, they're like, oh, now I get the gist. I don't need to watch the next nine minutes. Got it. I mean, I'm really curious. Out of the almost 750,000 subscribers, do you have like any rough number? How many of them convert or at least, you know, you know are interested, have an intent in, in purchasing one of your designs? Do you have like, can you like, are you able to quantify this in any, any sense? Um, honestly, that's a very interesting question. I've never thought of it from that point of like that exact angle. Usually it's because what you'll find is on YouTube, only 20 to four, like not of your subscribers, but of your views come from your subscribers. So 20 to 40%. So that means if we get a hundred thousand views on a video, generally 20 to 40,000 of them are from subscribers, which means 60 to 80,000 are from people who don't subscribe to our channel, which means mm -hmm. any given video, we have 700,000 subscribers who aren't watching it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the, that's kind of like the rough math. So Got those it. are kind of the metrics I'm always focused on. It would be really interesting to try to figure out some things there. We've done um, polling in the past. Um, but of course that's not just our YouTube subscribers. We pulled through email. So that means it's the most engaged YouTube subscribers. Um, but generally what we found is almost everyone in our audience pools are interested in purchasing 
Oh, for a lot of them though, it's just that our price point makes this a literal once in a lifetime purchase. Like, mm. um, there's just not that many people that are going to go out and spend four or $500 on a ring for, you know, just a, because it's a Wednesday, most of the time it's going to be a wedding ring, a graduation ring from that like general YouTube audience, because there was no qualification, right? It's not like on Facebook where we can um, say we're only going to prospect in zip codes that have uh, 90% or above um, 90 or above percentile income earners, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we can have people in there who, you know, this could be Joe Smith from Idaho, United States of America, who's 17 and in high school, and he's not going to be able to spend $400, $500 on a ring. Um, and that's generally like the data I do have is that almost everyone's interested. It's just about finding the price point or life event that matches up mm-hmm. and being top of mind at that time. Why do you feel like people are, you know, adding a product to cart and then not purchasing it? What, what do you, do you have any, any data on that? Like what are the main objections? Um, again, customers? for us, it typically comes back to price really. Um, and there's probably lots of other minor objections and we try to work with those. Like you're buying an expensive piece of jewelry online sizing, um, always an objection, but I feel like we do a pretty good job of getting over sizing with our ring sizers, um, allowing resizing things like that. But really the hardest one that like you, there's not a quick solution for is it really is just, it's expensive. So how important how how important it is for your customers um the thing that is it's handmade and it's not you know massively produced in china or you know in in a, like random factory um i think it's i think it's fairly important but again i think it depends on those segments like i think those like hobbyist maker customer avatar cares a lot more than the video game or luxury fashion customer avatar Um, and so it's really just a fine line there. And especially because there's lots of things like, um, one thing we, that I don't think is secret to anyone. We get a lot of, almost all of our materials come internationally from places like China and India. So we might buy rods of metal that are sized correctly for us to speed up our manufacturing process, because we can get a pipe that's been cut into 30 pieces with the right thickness and everything for cheaper than we can get metal in the U S and then we, you know, hand make the rest of it. We cut the pieces sure. that go on that, all of that. But, um, so like, I think it's hard though. Cause one thing we see is as we'll ask for something, we'll say like, Hey, can you like our meteorite sourcing process right now is still fairly archaic. We buy chunks of meteorite from, a guy in New York, a meteorite dealer who then cuts them into slabs, who sends them to us. Then we send them to a factory to get water jet cut into circles that they send us or rings, discs, they send them to us. And then we hand finish them. Whereas places in China will tell us, Oh no, we can't do that. That's literally impossible. And then once we hit that, it's like our suppliers are literally watching us and they're like, Oh, you've probably, we've seen you've sold probably X amount of those. That's half a million dollars in revenue or whatever over the past two years. We'll figure out the process so we can do it for you. Oh, okay. And then they'll cut it down to like one fifth of the price. And 
that's one thing we deal with a lot is then having that discussion of like, it takes one more step out of our handmade in the U S process, but it lets, it means our customers can go from paying $1,300 to $1,100. So Mm. it's, it's a really fine balancing act because there are so many moving parts and we want to make sure no one feels no one, everyone gets what they want to get out of the product. Sure. I mean, I think it makes sense if, if the product has the same, the same characteristics, it looks the same and it's still hand, like handmade, hand finished. It, I mean, for me as a consumer, I don't really care if the materials come from China or New York, as, as long as they're the same materials that you use uh, and the finish is the same. Um, the question I'm really curious, do you have any plans, for example, uh, comparing to uh, David Yerman in Bulgaria, uh, g- going on, on the retail side of things, you know, producing more pieces out of a specific design and then put them on, the, you know, in, in retail stores? You have um, any plans I on think, that? I think that's an area we'd like to explore, especially because like, um, I have some, I don't know if I, I have some acquaintances friends um in the meads who run crossnet and like they've you know 10x their company this year from millions of dollars a year in revenue to tens of millions of dollars of revenue just by retail penetration um and so obviously like that kind of quick slingshot growth would be incredible but the hard thing is um generally we're not going to be getting people like because right you go to bulgari david yerman they have their own boutiques. You can go in, say, Hey, I want to try this ring on. Okay. Can I get a size 10? You walk out with it. Mm. Um, each one of those locations, you know, is costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars in floating inventory. And especially like, I wouldn't even be surprised at Bulgari and David Yerman. I mean, I've been in David Yerman in Vegas and they've let me try on chains that cost $25,000 and they've had multiple of them. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're breaking the million dollar mark on just floating inventory per store. But um, for smaller jewelers, it actually becomes this thing of you're selling in another retailer and it's generally on consignment. So you send them five rings that just show the design. And then maybe someone happens to walk in and that rings a size 10, they're a size 10. It's perfect. They walk out with it that day. The store sends you your money. But more often than not, it's more about they walk in, they see that design, it looks really cool. The jeweler sizes them and then says, hey, we need one of these in size 12 in two weeks or whatever. And then they send you your 60% of the MSRP and that's your cut Mm -hmm. and they take the 40%. But that, and so it just means the slingshot growth is a lot less because you don't get those like, you don't get those big wins of, oh, we just got in Dick Sporting Good. They bought 10,000 units at a hundred or at $50. So we just made half a million in a day. Instead you're getting, oh, we just sent out a hundred rings for free and hopefully they'll get sales eventually. Mm-hmm. And if not, they'll send us those rings back. Got it. So, I see. Yeah. So it's just, it's more about navigating that logistical headache of making it worth our while and making sure we have the production capacity to say, okay, what happens if we're in random jeweler in New York and they come back to us and say, oh, we sold 10 rings this week and we have to ship 10 extra rings of X design. And obviously we have to do it in whatever design takes the most time to produce that 
we're sending to them and run all the numbers and make sure we can handle that capacity while knowing that in actuality, it's probably going to be 10% of that work and 10% of that revenue, but we have to be able to handle the peak or else it's not going to work. How long does it take for you to go on average uh, to go from uh, scratch and, and build a, one of your, I would say like, let's just say the best selling design, how long it takes. Um, honestly, I think the thing that'll shock people. So our best selling design is our stardust ring. You can see it. If you're on our homepage, it's in that top row of the best sellers. Yep. Um, that ring actually, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. So like I said, we source the, um, metal bands for the ring. Um, we source that somewhere. And mm-hmm. so they send us a band and then we make that mixture in advance that goes inside of it or the dry mixture that goes inside of it for our resin blend. And then we add in the wet ingredient while we do it. And so that whole process, once we have all those materials ready, um, our fastest guys can turn out a perfect one of those. And like, I don't even know anymore. It's probably 10 minutes or something. What oh, happens? Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's mainly just because we've, I mean, like there's two hours of prep work, creating enough dry ingredients to make the next hundred. Um, the wet ingredients don't need mixed or anything. Um, you know, spending thousands of dollars to pre-source the blanks so that we don't have to have a machine. Cause like how they make, I mean, it depends on what the material's made out of, but like that one's cobalt chrome. So how they make that blank is it's just a CNC like sits all day cutting the blank out of a rod. So it, you know, just cuts it with a computer. And so then we'll just have someone buy rods for us and just ship up, ship us blanks. And cause that part, like no matter what can't be hand, I mean, it could be handmade, but we'd have to add a literal thousand dollars to the product, which it's not a $1,500 product, you know? So that's like an example of where we don't hand make something. Um, but compare that to like that ring right next to it, the meteorite ring, those typically take four to five hours um, of just machining time. Plus there's lots of things like it needs to be etched in acid and that takes 30 minutes of just like it sitting there, but then you can be working on something else. The biggest reason we have such a long turnaround time though, has more to do with um, margin and our cash conversion cycle and things like that. So And that's just because we need to have, um, basically we're practicing just in time manufacturing and we need to have enough of a buffer Mm. so that employees aren't running out of work. Um, one of my favorite things, like one of my favorite books that I think really highlights like how this, our entire system is designed, it's called the goal. And I actually don't know who it's by, but it's a, um, operations book. You can get it on Amazon. It's really it's a really good illustration of like how our systems designed is because it's all throughout the print used with the principles of that book um but yeah it means that we can have our employees working constantly and all the rings are still coming out within a known time frame but employees don't have to sit around and as we get more and more orders we can shorten that time and that's what we do you know so our we advert or we advertise i think six to eight weeks for shipping right now. But like that Stardust ring actually probably ships in more like two to three weeks, almost 90% of the time. But we just haven't switched because we want to make sure we're hitting that consistently before we switch the shipping times and Mm. then have those 10 customers who 
happen to be at the five-week mark and then get triggered because they were planning it for their wedding or something. And that's probably back to objections. That's another one is our shipping time. But our customer service works really well with each customer to create kind of a solution for them on an individual basis, whether it's we'll sell them another ring at a huge discount and then they'll ship us that ring and then we'll refund them and ship their ring when it's ready for like a wedding so they can have one for the pictures or things like that. Like they're like, maybe we know that every other ring in that queue is just regular orders and they're all going to ship within their advertised timeframe. Cause like it's still on schedule that someone's wedding was in three weeks and their ring isn't going to ship for four weeks. We know we can move it to the up in the queue without anyone else like missing their wedding, things like that. So we, mm-hmm. we do try to work around that. Um, Cause I think that's like, that's one thing we've learned is we keep a fairly low. And I mean, I don't have like industry averages or anything right here, but we're sitting at like a three or three to 5% return rate annually as far as revenue. And it's even lower if you go just number of orders. Um, and that's with us shipping products that you pay us, you know, anywhere from 500 to $3,000 and don't get your product for two months. And it's really just a lot about really working with each customer to help them have the solution they need. Hmm. Right now, what, what, we, what would you say are your top three challenges? So you were mentioning that like the shipping time is, is definitely something that you're you're looking to uh find solutions to what is something other than that that you feel like you 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 must be improving or you're working on today um so let's see our top three um generally i spend most of my time focusing on like how to scale better and so our top three scale challenges are one um Email capture, um, we use a really broad marketing strategy, um, basically, and it's just because with, it's been getting harder and harder using like Amazon and Google to really dial into who's actually qualified to purchase um, luxury goods. Um, And so the way we negate this is by focusing on getting all of our funnel metrics to the point to where it's profitable to just rather than being ultra targeted and having really small audience pools to move up to really large audience pools and then having all those extra people going through our conversion process over time and knowing that we'll capture, you know, an extra 20% of revenue over the next six months, but it has to be profitable and getting our email capture to work in that context, I think is a big goal we have. And it's been one of our harder things to do in, we kind of, we know what to do. A lot of it comes down to tech issues over anything of like getting the lo- page load time faster so that they're seeing the calls to actions and then we can rate that. That's kind of our go-to there. Um, step number two, I would say is diversifying revenue, um, both platform and like ad platform, but also marketplace. So that would be our things like trying to penetrate retail, um, We've gotten to the point now where we're doing, um, it's still fairly small, but like $250,000 a year on Etsy. We want to try to do the same amount on Amazon Handmade, um, just so that we have other discovery 
And again, for us, we think of it more as like, that's kind of like search advertising because those are people who go to Amazon or go to Etsy to find our products rather than Google. Um, so I think that's kind of our big, our second big goal. And our third one, hmm, I think our third one would just be pumping out more creative. Um, I honestly get, I honestly can feel pretty upset sometimes with how little creative we're publishing, which is probably crazy compared to a lot of brands. When um, you say create, when you say creative, uh, do you mean like website image, like product images? Because or, I mean or like, or like video. YouTube video. Okay. Like video, but not just YouTube. A lot of it is for like advertising. So to run through, um, I'm just, well, I'm just doing a quick count. So in the past two months, we've tested about 10 different fully produced video ads on YouTube. And I love to get to the point where that's probably two to three months. I love to get to the point where we're doing 15 a month, at least for ad teams to test, because that's where you really unlock your biggest scale potential. We found is you hit one new creative and it really resonates with a certain audience. And now you can push that audience to the limit. Um, and so I think those are kind of the three things we're focused on is email capture, um, diversifying ad platforms slash marketplace platforms, and then um, creating new ad creative. Hmm. I think like talking about ad creative and video, it's something that I would love to pretty much chat with you in, in another episode and just purely talk about video. Uh, the question, uh, you know, the audience may be wondering is, are you producing the content yourself or you're outsourcing it to like an agency or someone else? Um, all of our content production happens in-house. So um, Patrick and I, I'm going to say executive produce with air quotes, all of the YouTube videos, but most of that I'm like, the executive producer, I'm really just there to say, okay, we need a video for this Saturday. We need, <clears throat> we have this sale going on or this product launcher, you know, let's fit it in. Let's shift this. I think this just feels weird with some branding things. You know, Patrick's really overseeing most of the hands-on work there. And then it flops to when we work on ads, I do, I oversee all the script writing, the editing instead of Patrick. And he's just there to be kind of my hey, this isn't, you know, the same things I'm doing. Hey, this doesn't really fit. This seems a little weird or whatever. But yeah, so we do it all in-house. Um, we have a videographer and two editors that spend all their time just working on content creation, whether it's for organic content or you or advertising content. So. And do you, do you have like a schedule? How often you feel like posting or is it just on a you know, case by case scenario. Um, so we post on YouTube. Yeah, we have a set schedule. We try to post once a week at least. <clears throat> Our actual goal is to be more like five to six times a month. So every Saturday plus two midweek uploads. But a lot of the time we miss that mark. Um, we just haven't quite hit our stride with that schedule. And then as far as ad content, it's pretty much just if you're not working on a piece for YouTube, you should be working on an ad piece. And that's kind of why I would like, I'd love to get more of those out because I definitely think there's room to test them. So we just need to figure out the efficiency of actually producing the content in-house fast enough. 
Mm. And when it comes to learning and coming up with ideas, do you have some like places that you like to, you know, visit like communities or websites? Like, how do you, how do you come up with new ideas? Because it seems like it's it, for, I mean, from outside, it looks, it looks like so complicated to come up with new video content, new ideas. Uh, where do you go through for ideas? Um, let me think about how to answer this in a way that's not extending this podcast by another hour. Um, so the way I would, my kind of like go-to tips slash tricks for content production, especially organic is to find what people are doing who have the same audience as you do. So, and then basically use them for inspiration. Um, I talked to, I have a lot of friends who are like financial YouTubers. They do those videos of like, you know, here's what credit card you should get. Here's how you should invest your money at age mm -hmm. 25, stuff like that. Um, and they'll talk about this all the time. Like, and these are the kids who like, they grow by a hundred thousand, 200,000 subscribers a month sometimes. Um, and like ultra viral creators. Um, and that's the whole strategy they use is who has my audience? What are they making? How can I make that same style of video without like stepping on their toes? So, mm. oh, they're doing videos on investing. I'm going to just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm not even going to watch their video, but I'm going to see that they have a video with a million views that says how to, in, how much to invest at 25. And I'm going to make that exact same video, but I didn't watch their video. So if it's really similar, it's really similar. If it's really different, it's really different. I don't care. And as you start producing content for a brand, it's that exact same principle. But instead what we focus on is we don't go, okay, I'm a disc golf brand. Who's making content about making disc golfs, frisbee golf discs, whatever they're called. Um, who's making that content? Cause not a lot of people are, what you do is you say, okay, here's my ideal customer. Who's making the content that they're watching. And then I'm going to go make that content, even though it might not be one-to-one -one related to my brand. It might be sometimes there's these videos that seem a little different, but if the audience overlap is there, it's going to work. And and that's exactly what you see with things like influencer marketing, like SeatGeek isn't going saying, okay, we're only offering influencer marketing deals to companies or to influencers who are hosting tours saying, go buy my tickets on SeatGeek. We're offering them to people who have an audience that would like um, outdoor or just events. So sports podcast hosts, because they like sports, things like that. Um, and that's really kind of the crux for organic is figuring out those customer profiles we talked about earlier and then figuring out how to emulate them or emulate, emulate content that they're already watching. Um, as it comes into ad space, I'll, what a lot of it is, is we sit down and really test um, three things, hooks, value propositions, and then calls to action. And it's just coming up with all the different ways to put those together. So um, it's literally just like, let's brainstorm five hooks for an ad. You know, well, we just talked about that price is a pain point. So let's, what if our hook is literally, why spend $5,000 on a wedding ring question mark? And that means we have to, people are going to be sucked in. So now in our value propositions when throughout, we have to talk about why spending $5,000 is worth it. 
And then, you know, like, so we could go with a Harmon Brothers style ad that's funnier and say, why spend $5,000? Oh, because you want a ring made from space. And then you show an astronaut flying through space, trying to mine an asteroid or something, you know, something silly. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of what we do is just sit here and brainstorm all these different like bullet points of hooks, value propositions, call to actions. And a lot of the time they're not, there's no style to them. It's just why spend lots of money on a ring? Um, your wedding ring should be unique, blah, blah, blah. Like just huge lists and then value propositions, handmade, um, exotic materials, glow, things like that. Just huge rest calls to action. Visit mm-hmm. our site, find your ring. And then what we'll do is I want an ad that stylistically is a little fun and energetic. Which one of these hooks am I going to pick? Okay, how do I make that fun and energetic? Or I want one that's just simple and easy to throw together. So let's do a fancy text motion graphic. Okay, I'm going to pair all these up, spend 30 minutes um, vamping, creating some filler, really working on the language. And then I'm going to send it to an editor and just say, turn this into a motion graphic where each line is a line of text. And that's actually what we're running. I think on YouTube right now is our biggest acquisition ad is literally just a text motion graphic where this is literally how I made it is I knew I wanted, um, I'll actually pull up the script here. I knew I wanted about a 15 to 30 second ad to run on YouTube and Facebook just to refresh creative. So this is, this wasn't like our, we're going to spend 10 hours a week for 10 weeks, try to come up with the best new ad. It was just, we're just going to try to come up with new creative so that nothing's getting stale. And mm. what I did is I ran down the list. Um, I'm just pulling it up in my archive scripts. Um, but I ran down the list. And so I started with, okay, I needed a hook. Jewelry should be one of a kind. And then um, that was our hook is like, right. Like our jewelry yeah. is unique, et cetera, et cetera. And then line two was a transition line. Line three was getting into our value props of we offer X number of designs and it's, you know, a counter that's going through the roof since we offer made to order stuff that's custom infinite designs. Um, then the next part is we show a lot of those. Then we hit those same value props that we we're already talking about of unique handmade and then our call to action buy jewelry to stand out not fit in transitions Hmm. to the logo with our url and that's the ad and we've probably you know spent five thousand dollars on it in the past seven days so i mean it's a lot of the time it's just having this vault of um resources to pull from and then really just putting it together and just trying to come up with a unique way to put it together each time so, so you're saying instead of brainstorming for hours and days, uh, so you come up with like the perfect video, you just decide to test out and launch as many creatives as possible and then just keep the audience engaged with new content. Is, is this correct? From Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I'm not, I have like ad spend teams and stuff who sure. spend all of our ad underneath, all of our ad spend underneath me, but we do spend about a hundred thousand dollars a month on advertisements. Um, and really a lot of it is just things like let's spend a lot of time finding what hooks work and you can do that with PowerPoint. You know, you don't need to be out there spending 10 hours and then 
or hundreds of hours brainstorming and then spending tens of thousands of dollars paying production companies to film, you can sit there and go, okay, I'm going to put our brand color is blue. I'm going to make five blue slides. And the first slide is going to be a hook. And then the next two or three slides are just going to be a value proposition. And then the last one's the call to action. And I'm just seeing the view through rate to see if my hooks are working. And then Mm -hmm. once you see your hooks are working, you're going to say, okay, which value propositions are working and getting people to keep watching. And then once you have that info, you can start worrying about making it a more produced ad and saying, okay, well, we found a hook really works and X, Y, and Z value props really work. How do we put those together in a little more produced, a little more fun way that's a little less bland, but you really don't need to worry about spending thousands of dollars producing ad content if you don't know kind of like what your bullet points yeah. are for your playbook. That's that's awesome. Is extra brilliant. So you create like small MVPs of each like each concept and then you just test it out. Exactly. That's and a big part of that is that's how YouTube can be so powerful in your content marketing is Let's go back to the disc golf example because this way I'm not giving anything too specific way for us and maybe someone who has a disc golf store <laughs> listens to this and they can use it. But say you make a disc golf um, video where it's or company and you have this YouTube channel where you're focusing on like disc golf vlog content. I know there's like Brody Smith, the ultimate, he used to play be like a professional ultimate Frisbee player in America and he makes a lot of content about Frisbee golf. Um and then say you have something like that. So like you're showing courses, you're giving tips on how to throw, just showing awesome courses, things like that, more like entertaining content, all of us, but you're selling disc golf bags. And this, this example comes because I know someone who mm-hmm. this, they just sold a company that was selling bags for disc golf. Um, all of a sudden you can throw up one of these little 30 second ads of you just going through this, you find your hook, find your value propositions, find your call to action at the end, you throw up a 30 second video on YouTube and you can see how it converts to see, okay, is it converting to my warm audience? Yes. Now I can run it on paid. Now I can move it and re-edit it so it's a little faster and run it on Facebook paid. And that's really where these organic content hubs can really help. So even something like TikTok, like if you can get your audience to buy on TikTok, you can probably cut that into an ad and you just need to make sure you have a better hook so that someone who's never heard of you sticks around, you know? Yeah, that's, that, that's really interesting. And when it comes to creating the, the videos itself, I understand you have a team um, that does all of this. Do you have maybe some tips or do you use some kind of a software that makes it easier to create the videos? Because this is the main thing that when I talk to e-commerce, operators or founders, they say like, I don't have the resources or it's too complicated, too expensive. Um, do you have any like tips or resources that you use to make, to make those uh, slide, at least the MVPs uh, easier and faster to produce? If I was going to make an MVP ad and I literally, I would use Adobe Premiere um, because I know how to do it. But if I was worried that like, if it was just too hard, which I think you could be up to speed and like, 10 minutes, if you were just making an MVP where you're putting a colored picture in thing like that mm-hmm. and then narrating over it, I watch a 10 minute tutorial on how to 
you know, search like how to set up your first project and then how to put in a import an image and make those images with yeah. PowerPoint. But if I was too nervous about that, I would literally use Zoom and a PowerPoint and just click record and use Zoom to do my voiceover and just make sure I could get it good enough in one take. Um, if it was like for longer form produced content, um, if you have an iPhone or a smartphone of any kind, you, you've got a camera that's as good as DSLRs were five to 10 years ago. So just turn that around and use that as your video camera. Um, I have a really good, some really good friends, um, Dan and Mitchell from the Waterjet channel. They actually film, uh, they're full-time YouTubers and they film every piece of content they've ever filmed with an iPhone. And then they edit it on, I think they use Premiere, but their videos, you could, you could download the iMovie app and edit on your iPhone and upload because they're not adding mm. overlays. They're not doing anything. It's just trimming footage. And obviously that's faster in something like Premiere where you can just drag something and use your mouse and everything. But you could edit it on an iPhone with any of those editors. So a lot of the time it's less about needing the fancy tools, the fancy software, the fancy know-how and just having the hustle to just go out and do it, you know? Yeah. Love it. This is, this is exactly what Matt from neon beach was mentioning. Uh, like the way he started the whole thing, the whole brand and he scaled it to more than eight figures. Now it was by some like iPhone videos, and it, it seems like this is the, the right approach, especially when you don't have the, the budgets to invest thousands of dollars in, into a video. Yeah. And I'm going to tell this a little wrong. Um, so I was chatting with Chris Mead. He's one of the founders of CrossNet. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he's okay with me saying this because he said it to me in a publicly broadcast conversation. They did like $2 million of revenue last year. And this year they're going to hit like 12 million plus. Just it was the perfect um, storm of they had a, they were growing really fast already and they had a product that was an outdoor game activity that was perfect for quarantine with COVID-19 and they started to get really good retail penetration, but they're, that's literally almost all of their content is filmed with like an iPhone. And now they do have some like DSLR or drone shots and stuff that they get all their content by just saying, they'll reach out to their whole network and say, Hey, do you want to come to the beach with us and we'll buy you lunch and you can hang out with us all day for, we'll buy a lunch, but you have to film for an hour playing this game with us. And cause mm -hmm. it's a, it's basically a combination of four square and volleyball is what their company sells. Um, and so that's what they do. And like, they'll do stuff like they'll do crazy stuff of like, Oh, Hey, we're staying at a mansion in Phoenix cause they needed a pool for their new pool version of their game we'll let you come stay at the mansion for a night if you have a drone and can film for us and just stuff like that. Like it there, you can always just be resourceful and hustle yeah. your way to getting content. Cause there's always going to be someone who has a passion and like, I'm sure everyone probably has at least someone in their network from high school or college who makes content as a hobby, even if it's just funny little videos or whatever that they don't even put on YouTube that are just for their family who would come do something for, a free lunch or a free dinner yeah. when you're just starting out and especially for the experience. And then maybe that becomes a killer ad and you get to, they get to put it on their portfolio or their resume. And now they can charge people hundreds of dollars and hours to do that the next time, you know? Yeah. I guess it's all about being resourceful and actually getting, getting the first steps, doing those first steps and not just 
think about it, but actually start small, even if it's crap, even if it's not perfect. Oh yeah. I definitely think that's all. I think the resourcefulness is the, the real separator from like zero to one, right? If you want to go from yeah. no revenue to your first $10,000, it's being resourceful and figuring out how you can do X, Y, or Z. And that's the same with every platform of like, we wanted to start Etsy. So we took um, like the most self-motivated member of our marketing team and literally just told him, hey, we want to try to do Etsy. None of us here know a single thing about Etsy SEO. You have two weeks to just put all the products on there and learn as much as you can. And we'll pay you a bonus for the revenue that you drive. And he went out and zero to one, you know, just spent yeah. 40 hours a week just studying. And now we do, you know, $25,000 a month of revenue on Etsy, just off basically autopilot. Like we just list our new products when they come on and that's it. So yeah. I definitely think learning to be resourceful is probably the number one trick you can have if you want to be any kind of entrepreneur, but especially in direct to consumer and digital um, e-commerce. Absolutely, man. It was it was such a it was such an awesome conversation. I I really mean it. We have to jump in in another uh, episode in a few few months down the line and just dive deeper into video because we already spent uh, quite some time and I, I feel like we did not even touch the the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so we can leave this for the for the second episode. Uh, whenever that sounds perfect to me, I would love to. For sure. So. Um, just to just to end this conversation, what is uh, what is next for you? How does the how does the end of the year look for you? Um, the end of the year, it's looking pretty good. We've been we've been scaling pretty well month over month, and we usually Q four is obviously our biggest quarter. So I'm hoping to I'm hoping we'll be able to hit and between this growth compounding and everything that by the end of this year we'll have an eight figure run rate in sight of as far as revenue. So like, you know, doing 800,000 a month or like 850,000 mm -hmm. will be, we'll have a clear timeline of when that's actually going to come. Um, and then just lots of just hanging out, you know, relaxing and <laughs> figuring out what's next is. Absolutely. Yeah. Now as, as for the ending question, uh, we always ask this uh, final question is, if you could send one text message to every person in the world, what would that text message be? Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm so torn because like, there's a part of me that wants to be a good person and just say something like, <laughs> oh, have a great day. But then there's another part of me that's like, why am I not whipping up a landing page and running one of those, like just running any kind of, data gathering thing so I can start having huge <laughs> audience pools like which is probably my go-to is I'd probably I'd probably come up with some I mean I've got a pretty I'd probably give away like Amazon gift cards in exchange for a survey and then use that survey to place um place people in custom Facebook audience pools so then I can have really targeted custom audiences for my Facebook ads that's honestly what I do I know that's, that's like yeah, that's, that's like that's the one of the first. <laughs> that's, that's like the meanest the thing to say, but yeah. Well, I mean, you you would probably monetize the the thing, so that's that's a good that's a good approach. Never thought about it, so that, yeah. that's definitely uh, interesting. I know everyone like I hear that question all the time, and everyone's like, "Oh, I do like get out to get out and vote or 
you know, recycle or something like that. And I'm like, okay, you're a much better person than I am. Cause I would spend, if I had that ability, I would spend 90% of like, if I had an hour to send out that text, I'd spend the first 55 minutes brainstorming how I'm going to monetize it and then <laughs> trying to retire. So <laughs> that's awesome. man. Love it. Cool. So what's the best place for people to connect with you? Um, LinkedIn is really good. I read all my messages cause I, that's where I get all my consulting work from. So I have to read all those messages. So if you have any questions, LinkedIn's a great place. Um, I also have a newsletter where I send out one actionable piece of advice every week at faucetdigital.com forward slash newsletter. And so each week I try to come up with one thing that you can use in your like direct to consumer business or any business really, but to try to grow your revenue and your marketing. Thanks for joining us today. If you're on Shopify, check out cardloop.io or just search for Cardloop in the Shopify app store. Cardloop is a text messaging platform your customers will love. It not only helps you increase your sales, but it also provides a better shopping experience for your customers by building one-to-one relationships with each one of them through text messages. And the cool thing about it is that there's no time required for you and your team as we've got a whole team of experts handling the conversations 24-7. If you want to learn more about it or test drive Cardloop, we've got a seven-day free trial. So just go to cardloop.io and get started for free. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.